have the joy-filled task, but an enormous task of covering all of chapter two this morning. There's a lot here. So 26 verses, we're gonna be making some hay. We're gonna, we're gonna be moving pretty quick. Excellent, if you don't have an outline, now's the time, no harm. Walking back there, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 2. I'm gonna go ahead and open us in prayer. Uh, per usual, I just remind us, we don't do this because it, this is just the rote thing that we should do. It is, but there's, there's reason why. Uh, we need the Lord's help. A busy morning, getting ready, you're here, and I trust you're glad that you're here. And uh, we get to now place ourselves under his word, his instruction. We ask that his wisdom would make its way in our life, that uh, we would live differently, right? That's the end. We want him to be honored and glorified. So uh, if that's going to happen, we need him to help. Okay. We're going to go ahead and start. If you're behind the curtain, make your way back this way. Uh, bow your head and close your eyes. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for the prophet that found therein. And we ask that now you would help us to glean from your wisdom from above. We pray to the end that you would be honored, that our lives would be drawn to a sober-minded state where it's full of joy and uprightness and a life which pleases and honors you. Uh, Lord, we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, just by way of reminder, uh, God, God is doing something very specific in this book, okay? If you think of the whole book, 12 chapters, he's doing something very specific. On one end, he's showing you the futility of life without him, okay? Essentially saying, here's what you're left with without me, right? And to this, Solomon says, Havel, vanity of vanities, all is, what does it say? You're very familiar with vanity, right? And it's not that life is meaningless. It's simply that all those things you graft after, grasp after to fulfill you and satisfy you, they are vain in and of themselves apart from God. They are like smoke in your hand. They are beautiful, they're mysterious, but like smoke and vapor, they're here and then they're gone. And because there's no lasting substance to them, this is important for you to store away in your mind, they're incapable, that's important, incapable of rendering to you what they promise, right? And to this Solomon says, this is incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And so through the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he forces us, he puts a hand around the shoulder, he causes us to sit down and to stare into this frustration for a very specific purpose. It's not that in so doing, you would be left with soul crushing despair. It's not so that you would be criminally disappointed, it's so that in so doing, you would be taken up with what? You'd be taken up with the significance of life with God, right? You remember, that's the theme of the book. God shows you the fertility of life without him in order to display the significance of life with him. I think it's on your PowerPoint this morning. The big idea of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes shows us the futility of life without God in order to show us the significance of life with him. So he forces you to stare into these frustrations to this end. You'll recall last week, the main idea of chapter one is that these frustrations, the frustrations of life in a fallen world should do something. They should drive your hearts to a satisfying God. In order to prime us for the reception of that book, last Sunday, Solomon isolated various frustrations that exist with being broken people on a broken planet, right? There's frustration in man's wisdom, contribution, and dominion, okay? This is what Solomon's doing at the beginning of the book. He's forcing you and I to stare at some very, very unsettling realities. And why is that the case? Is so that we would be positioned to be pointed and directed to a God who is satisfying. This Sunday in chapter two, Solomon directs us to still more frustration as if that was not enough. And that is the frustration of pleasure apart from God. I want you to pause for a moment and just recall, this is King Solomon, okay? No one rivaled this man in the way of wealth and leisure and power and wisdom 
to make a greater, more thorough investigation than what Solomon is about to put on display. And so we're gonna look at that investigation. And this is, this is self-absorbed pleasure at its finest, okay? You're gonna notice that self-absorption just really permeating the passage. It's I, 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 me, 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 I did this, I did this for myself, for myself. And the takeaway is after we read it and walk our way through it is that the self-absorbed pursuit of pleasure is frustrating for a few reasons. Number one, the self-absorbed pursuit of pleasure is frustrating because it robs us through an alluring scam. Just begin with me in verse one. Take a discerning glance here. Solomon says, I said to myself or his heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. One of the realities that Solomon makes abundantly clear throughout this book is that God has etched something into your heart. Chapter 3, verse 11, he's literally etched, written, eternity in your heart. Such that not only do you desire to understand life, and to understand life and what it's all about. You have this gnawing sensation to to know its meaning, to know its purpose, to ascertain what God is doing from the beginning to the end, and yet that understanding eludes you. But we also, because of this eternity etched into our hearts, we have this God-shaped hole that only God can fill. Nothing, that's important, nothing in this post-fall world can bring true satisfaction. Which means, friends, that Solomon has an unfortunate dilemma right off the gate. His search is doomed to disappoint from the outset, and why is that the case? It's because he's committed to testing his heart with that which has no capacity to truly satisfy. And he's gonna make that apparent in a moment. Just look at it here, he wastes no time in saying saying so. Right off the gate, verse one, I need you to know, and behold, it too, was futility, cutting right to the chase. I, I found that it's, it's vain, it's like smoke and vapor, that apart from God, it lures you in, it snares you in its deception, and it robs you through a hollow scam. Look at verse two, I, I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Again, another profound question. And in street terms, what Solomon's saying is that the good times of this world are something far less, right? They're hollow, they're a sham. I want you to pause for a moment and just think about King Solomon's life. Think about the laughter that would have permeated his home, okay? That would have filled his place. He had safety, he most assuredly had prosperity. His house was constantly filled with guests which exchanged uh, jokes and drank wine and listened to what was modern day comedians or merrymakers from all over the region. He even feasted every day with said guest. First Kings chapter four really gives an overwhelming description of those feasts that took care, took place every day in Solomon's home. It would amount, have amounted to over 3,600 oxen, 7,300 cattle and over 365,000 sheep. It's said that that could feed about 30,000 people in a feast. Now, of course, in order to raise all of those animals to just eat day after day and day after day, you had to possess the land upon which those animals were to graze. The takeaway is that Solomon is filthy rich. He can host such a banquet. His home could be filled with such laughter. Which makes the next statement jarring because Solomon says that laughter is what? He says it's madness. It's madness. That's a heavy word there. The word there for madness is something that shines brilliantly on the outside. It looks good from the outside, but that is the sum total of its substance and nothing more, right? This is the Las Vegas of satisfaction. All lights, all glitter, its advertising agency produces more than its manufacturing department, right? It will never produce as much as it promises. And so in the end, it's, It's all an alluring scam that leads to misery. Solomon's gonna say, a striving after the wind, a vexation of spirit. 
Because such pleasure and because such laughter has no permanence in a broken world, it's incapable of rendering what it promises, which is true, lasting satisfaction. Before we move on, I just wanna be clear about one thing as we really kind of drink in this message, which is, this is why the book oftentimes gets a bad rap, right? This is depressing, right? Need to be clear about what Solomon is not saying, okay? Let's not misconstrue Solomon's words to mean that all pleasure and laughter is wrong. That's not the case. By all means, pleasure and laughter are good things upon this earth. Solomon's not saying, let's just go live a life of asceticism and crawl into a cave. That's, That's not what Solomon is espousing. Uh, we're created by God to bring him glory. And one of the ways we bring him glory is enjoying the good things he's given to us on this earth. We, we're created to enjoy the fruit of creation. We're created to work hard and enjoy the fruit of our labor. It's part of his design that we would enjoy a tender touch and tasty food, a tangy, a tangy beverage, even perfume filling the air. God has given you very complex senses of which to enjoy said items in all of their splendor. And what Solomon is saying is that these pleasures, while not wrong and evil in and of themselves, and I need to be very clear about that, they're not wrong, they're not evil. He's simply saying that these pleasures provide a very unsound foundation upon which to build a life. Let me put this another way. What is wrong is abandoning ourselves to pleasure to the neglect of God and fear of him. What is wrong is abandoning ourselves to said pleasure with little regard of the fact that one day you will stand before said creator who's made you to enjoy these things and render glory to himself through such enjoyment and you live your life with little regard that one day you will stand before that creator and you will give an account, a la Ecclesiastes 12, right? All of us, will give an account as to how we proceeded on with our lives. And it will either have been in the fear and reverence of the Lord, keeping his commandments, walking in wisdom, or it would have been walking the way of the fool, which leads to vexation of spirit. Keep moving with me through this text to verse three. Solomon didn't come to this conclusion without a great deal of effort. Right? Notice the varied steps of how he's coming to these conclusions. What did he do in his life to investigate these matters? He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. So he's not drunk and intoxicated. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men. That's an important phrase to do under heaven the few years of their lives. There's one inescapable challenge there that we cannot pass over, and that is this. We are still, to this day, we're the sons of men. We're the sons of Adam. We're we're a, a a Genesis 3 type of people, right? We reside under heaven. That means our life is one of significant, significant limitations, Life in a post fall world, being the sons of men, means that not only is our humanity limited and that we are broken, but it's also unbelievably brief, as we've already seen in chapter one. Friends, these factors, when you put them together, that we are limited and our lives are brief, it makes the search for that which is good or worth going after in this life incredibly, incredibly difficult. We only have an imperfect environment in which to seek it and our time for seeking it is very short. So to cut right to the chase, jump to verse 11, Solomon tells you the end of the matter after this investigation. He says, thus I've considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Wine cannot fill the space that characterizes a life devoid of God. Pleasure can't fill the space. It can't dull the pain of living in a broken world. It has no lasting permanence. It only produces vexation of spirit. Keep going to verses four through six because the investigation continues, right? He moves from the senses of pleasure to accomplishment. 
Verse four, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water, there's that phrase again, for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Wisdom was not the only thing that Solomon was famous for. He also boasted a treasury of architectural accomplishments and the world knew it. He was quite famous for. In fact, the book of 1 Kings gives us insight into this boasting. It talks about the inventory of his building enterprises were so impressive that it actually contributed, 1 Kings chapter 12, to the northern tribes breaking away under Jeroboam. They were a pivotal part to that breaking away. 1 Kings chapter 7 gives a really fascinating overview of those accomplishments. And let's just say that they were impressive by anyone's standards. He also dabbled in gardening, vineyards, gardens, parks, and orchards. Gardens were the pride of kings and nobility in the ancient Near East. To this day, if you make your way to the White House, you will find people tirelessly laboring to manicure cherry trees and gardens. Why? It's an exhibition, it's a display of order and power, influence and resources. So just like today, that was the case back then. It was a a distinguishing mark of prominence if you could have a beautiful, well-kept, irrigated garden. To that end, Solomon says, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Friends, this was no small thing in Solomon's day. This would have been a major, major source of boasting. In a land that you had neither major rivers like the, like the Tigris and the Nile, nor adequate rainfall like Israel, leaders had to exercise incredible ingenuity in building aqueducts and reservoirs. And this would have been very, very impressive in Solomon's day, and it was. So you had, you had the Pools of Solomon, which was to the southwest of Jerusalem. It was said that they contain over 40 million gallons of water, not just for the purpose of relaxation, but for the irrigation of new trees. And what does the irrigation of new trees means? It means you have more trees to build more ships and more buildings and more musical instruments. Getting the takeaway is that Solomon lacked for nothing. If anyone was going to succeed in this great investigation, it would have been Solomon. I think part of the takeaway here is where are all those fascinating architectural accomplishments today? They're gone. And dare I say they're gone, much like smoke and vapor is gone. It's here and it's gone, right? You think about the six of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They've all been destroyed by fire and earthquake. Even the seventh, the great ancient pyramids are even now deteriorating under time and exposure to the elements. Solomon's not done, of course. He says in verse seven, he says, I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. His wealth afforded him every pleasure. Again, 1 Kings chapter 10, 14 through 29 really records the extent of Solomon's wealth, right? Based on the talents of gold that Solomon would collect in a given year, it's said that it would be about at the annual income of $650 million a year. 1 Kings 10, 27 says that, that in Solomon's day, gold and silver were regarded as stones in the street. They were so prevalent. According to his research, Sean Higgins says Solomon may have possessed up to $9.2 trillion of net worth. He could have and did have anything that he wanted. Again, he was insanely, insanely rich. This is only affirmed in verses 9 through 10. Then I became great. That's an understatement, right? By worldly standards. And increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. 
I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor. Now, to which you as a good Bible student have to ask, did this unbridled self-absorbed pursuit of pleasure satisfy his soul? No, right? This self-absorbed pursuit of pleasure is frustrating. Not only does it rob you, but secondly, you see in verses nine through 11, it also produces something. It produces the bitter frustration of emptiness. This is apart from God, that is. The massive worth of all this acquiring and building had to be evaluated, had to be asked what advantage and profit was there to his labor? And the answer is reaffirmed in verse 11. It was the same, there, there was no profit. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after when and there was no profit under the sun. He, he goes from verse 10, my heart was pleased <laughs> to verse 11, oh, my spirit is vexed. To which we go, what's the shift between verses 10 and 11? What gives? Solomon's describing the colossal letdown of earth, right? Momentary enjoyment leading to disappointing benefits. And that can be depressing, can it? It can be frustrating. If anyone was going to find enjoyment in this life, enjoyment from earthly pleasure, it would have been Solomon. He had unprecedented resources at his disposal and yet he was unsatisfied apart from God. You guys are familiar with juicy fruit, I'm sure. Anyone ever been frustrated and disappointed by juicy fruit, right? As time goes on, it, it lasts less and less time as the years go by, right? You put it in, you get a brief, I'm talking brief, momentary moment of enjoyment, then a bland flavor followed by an overworked jaw, right? <laughs> Solomon's saying, it's, it's, it's like that, I gave myself. I did not withhold anything all of this pleasure, brief momentary enjoyment, and then it's gone. Again, I want to be, make very, very clear. Now, as we make our way through Solomon, the reason why it gets a bad rap is because you lose focus of this. Solomon mentions this in this passage, these things, these pleasures, they are not wrong in and of themselves. I need you to hear me. What is wrong equally important, what is wrong is making these the object of one's pursuit in life. That's what's wrong. What is wrong is when they are done to the extent for self, to the extent that they turn out to be idolatrous and lead you away from God. It, what is wrong is if these things begin to replace God in one's life. Any good thing done in a sinful way, listen, will always be frustratingly vain. Let me say that again. Any good thing done in a sinful way will always prove God designed it this way, frustratingly vain. And so he's not against pleasure. Please hear me. He's simply saying that pleasure can do no more than God intended for it to do. No matter what pleasure you enjoy in life, apart from God, it's like that steam off of the cup of coffee that you drink this morning. It's there and then it's gone. It's like trying to catch the wind in your hand, or as he says, striving after the wind. And all of this is incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Now, if those frustrations are to prove fruitful in your life, and they should, what should those frustrations do? Give you a hint, it's on the screen, okay? They should drive your heart to a satisfying God. Solomon's gonna keep going. I told you we had aspired to cover the whole stinking chapter, okay? So let's keep moving. Solomon directs us to still more frustration, okay? And that's the frustrating lack of permanence we experience in this life. There's this equalizing mortality that exists over us. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I said that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. 
The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it it will also befall me. Why then have, have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. There's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days, all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Let me just give you a life tip for a moment. Do not make verse 17 your life verse, okay? Can we commit to doing that? I hated life. The work which I had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despair of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does, a man get, what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And then you have the conclusion of this chapter which is no stranger to us. There is nothing better. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God and such a profound question that is more like a statement for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. That's a better life verse. For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's a list. While to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. There's a lot there. If you're familiar with playing rook or spades, you, you, you know full well that there are trump cards, right? It's a trump card you can put down, right? And it trumps everything. Well, death here is Solomon's trump card, right? He pulls it from the deck, he lays it down. He says, something trumps everything in life. It's a grave reality called death. We have to appreciate Solomon here because he does so without any spin. He does so without any anesthetic. It's just real and raw and vulnerable as he unpacks three grave realities about life. One is that death trumps wisdom. Verses 12 through 17, he turns from pleasure, he examines wisdom and folly. He says, I turn to wisdom, madness and folly for what will the man do who will come after the king except that which has already been done. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. His critique is not intended to be all encompassing. It's only intended to to see how wisdom stocks up against death, right? Obviously, wisdom is going to beat folly in this life, okay? You just make your way through the rest of the book. Uh, Processing wisdom is gonna say it gives success and enables you to prosper. It preserves life, it protects, it gives strength and joy. It's clear that Solomon is not discarding wisdom as useless. That's not the point. He's only measuring it as a realist who's going to die. That's what Solomon is doing. His point is that wisdom is indispensable, but wisdom is limited. Look at verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head. It means he's perceptive. He's able to deduce what's going on. He's able to approach the end of life sober-minded and with the sense of clarity where the fool walks in darkness, completely detached from what awaits him. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. No matter whether one is wise or whether one is foolish, one fate still awaits them in the end and it's death. I encourage you not to make more of this than you should. This this is not fatalism that Solomon's guilty of, right? Solomon's going to later assure us in chapter three and following God is indeed sovereign, okay? 
God is sovereign, but at the same time, wisdom doesn't exempt you from, from the mortality that comes our way because of Genesis 3. That's the point. Be as wise as you possibly can, but know this, it does not spare you from death on this earth. Verse 15, then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Again, is is Solomon throwing out the wisdom that God had given him? No. Solomon is not throwing out the wisdom that God had given him. He's only going back, he's not going back on his conclusion that wisdom is better than folly. Solomon is just being a realist. He says, look, I'm wise. God has given me an abounding amount of wisdom, but my wisdom doesn't save me from dying. That's his point. It's reiterated in verse 16, for there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days, all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. Not only will we die, but all will be forgotten. I mentioned it last week. I I don't really know much about my great, great, even great grandparents. I don't know their names. I don't even know what they did for a living. Perhaps you are better than I with your family tree. My family's not. And that's a principle and a reality that we know from life, anecdotally, right? All will be forgotten. Today, we have memorial services. We have a potluck afterwards. We talk, we grieve, we chat, we laugh, we share memories. And then we leave said potluck And several weeks later, we are well on our way to going about our life as normal, right? And so Solomon is painfully aware of this. Look what he says in verse 17. Again, this is why the book often gets a bad rap. These statements are read in isolation. He says, so I hated life. Yuck. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. It was evil to me. It was unhelpful to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Don't miss that this statement is in reference to the work that Solomon had done. All those accomplishments we read about earlier, the architectural accomplishments, the, the, the treasure that he had amassed, the wealth that he had accumulated, He's pointing out the frustration of literally seeing it all slip away in death. Again, this is, this is a perspective that's a very under the sun perspective. This is an earthly, temporary, here and now perspective. Later on in chapter five, it's gonna give way to the godly perspective and it comes in and saves the day, right? In fact, turn to chapter five for a moment, okay? One of the challenges in studying this book over multiple weeks is that it's really one long sermon. It's intended to go from beginning to end in one sitting, okay? And so we have to bounce around to gain perspective. What's the follow-up? What does he, what does he add to this in just a, moment, just a moment later? Look at chapter five, verse 18. And this is where really this part of the book is going. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward, right? We talked about enjoy life as a gift from God. This is it. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also, and what's the word there, church? Empowered him, right? God is the one who gives you the ability to extract enjoyment from life. He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied. What a beautiful sentence. God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Who does not want to sign up for that? God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I I point us to chapter five for a moment, just for a little balance here. What we read in chapter two, verse seven, thus I hated life, is not the only thing that Solomon will say about life under the sun, okay? And you need to be mindful of this. 
the same time, we have to ask, well, what is he saying in chapter two, verse 17? The point that Solomon's pressing into our chest and into our hearts and minds is that what you do with your intellect will not bring you meaning unless it brings you to God. In other words, all of that wisdom and knowledge and intellect has little to do with your mortality. It will not save you. We cannot with all the wisdom on the earth ever accumulate enough to avoid death. Have you ever notice that sometimes people who live with a high degree of intellect, I'm talking some of the deepest thinkers on the planet, it's not uncommon that you have testimony after testimony with those highly intellectual people, high capacity people, they end up taking their life to which we, as normal intellect, I hope, maybe below average intellect, I look and go, what, what gives? What happens there is because that person, despite how smart and brilliant and intellectual they may be, they run out of answers, don't they? They take their life because they're vexed of spirit. It's vanity, it's striving after the wind and they have no paradigm through which to see and understand. So they go to the drastic end of taking their own life. This is Solomon's point. I've accumulated all this wisdom and in the end it's all trumped by death. If you think that's sobering, Solomon keeps going that death trumps wealth as well. Verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Don't really need an explanation of this per se. Solomon is obviously disillusioned by the fact that all that he has amassed, which we just saw it a moment ago, is quite quite a bit, all that he's worked for, all of his wealth, is gonna be swallowed up by death and it's gonna be rendered and granted to his son Rehoboam, okay? And Rehoboam hadn't worked for it, is the reality. Well, anyone know anything about Rehoboam's life? It wasn't a stellar example, right? You look at First Kings, right? You read the story of Rehoboam, he literally squandered the very wealth after Solomon's death and did so immediately, right? All of Solomon's legitimate fear here would be made manifest and come true. First Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam plunders the, the temple his father had built. He uses that which he plundered, the gold inside the temple to literally pay off the Egyptian army like that. And so Solomon, for good reason, begins to think deeply about, I, I'm gonna leave everything to this kid? who hadn't worked for it, know full well that Solomon was quite attuned probably to Rehoboam and his disposition. And where this frustration comes in is that at the end of the day, like Solomon, whatever you give to those after you, you, have, you don't know or have control of what they're gonna do with it, right? Now, Again, I need to be clear about what I'm not saying. I am not saying don't have a life insurance policy, don't will things to your kids. By all means, I've done that. Please do that. I help people do that. By all means, do it. Solomon is just saying be careful, right? When you die, you have no control over what they do with what you've worked for. And so verse 20, Solomon continues. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. No wonder Solomon's despairing. Look at verse 21. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, like Solomon, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. When he says evil, he's not talking about a moral evil. He's talking about a, a, a travesty, right? A calamity. That kind of view. It just seems unjust. Verse 22, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. This is talking about laying down at night and stressing about your inheritance. Stressing about your stock and bond portfolio, the wealth, 
or your apparent lack of wealth of which you perceive. By the way, if you think, you know, when we're talking about wealth and everyone else around you is wealthy and you are not, okay, if you know where you're going to sleep tonight and know where your next meal is going to come from, biblically, you are wealthy, okay? You just pause for a moment and think about the stress that wealth creates, okay? Sometimes we think if I could just have a little bit more, my stress would be relieved. And if you take one, one of many, many things away from Solomon, that is not the case. To simply have more simply means we wring our hands over what to buy and how to get it and how to keep up with it, how to store it so nothing destroys it, how to make sure people appreciate it, how to keep it clean and in working order, how to maintain the things that we have, how to keep others from stealing it, keeping it safe. And we wonder who ultimately will get this stuff when we die, knowing again, as Solomon says, they did not work for it. This is the realist in Solomon. He's viewing the world and all of its accumulation. He's gonna reiterate this later in chapter five that there's nothing evil about having these things. There's nothing evil about enjoying the fruit of your labor, but the spur that comes into his saddle comes into the picture when we try to extract happiness and meaning out of what we own instead of God, right? It is God who empowers you to enjoy these things. This is the gift of God. Thankfully, God has a way this post-fall world, post-Genesis 3, he's actually designed and orchestrated a life on a fallen, broken planet with broken, sinful people. God has actually designed that if we, things in such a way that if we are guilty of doing these things, trying to find meaning, trying to find lasting satisfaction in earthly things and what we can amass, He's designed such things in such a way that he has made them incapable of making us truly happy. This is why not only do you have brilliant people who are miserable, you have incredibly brilliant, wealthy people who are still what? Still miserable. It's because of this. It's because of Ecclesiastes. Death trumps wisdom. It trumps wealth. But thankfully, 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 Solomon doesn't stop there, right? Praise God, there's good news that is, we are left with right in the middle of this kind of startling reality in that there is one who does trump death, right? And it's God himself. Look at verse 24. Therefore, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. Even labor is from God. Labor was in the garden. Man was there to tend it. Work is good. Labor is good. But the conclusion is in verse 25. While verse 17 is not a good life verse, verse 25 is one you can't hang your life on. It's not so much a question as it is a statement for who can eat and who can have enjoyment. Powerful two words here, without him. And the answer implied there is no one, no one. You can have in temporary enjoyment without him, but it is never, ever lasting. Friends, the reality is this, is that death exonerates wisdom when that wisdom leads us to understand and acknowledge God, right? The end of the matter when all has been heard is to what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Keep looking to verse 26, 26. If you're still thinking, man, this is still kind of quite a bummer. Verse 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, that is the believer who fears him, that is the believer who does live out Ecclesiastes 12, 9 and 10. He has given wisdom and knowledge and here finally, joy. Again, sign me up for that list. While to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This to his vanity and striving after the wind. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the blessing, right? The blessing of being a godly person. The blessing of being a believer who fears the Lord. In the same context as he's been telling us he hates life, which is a secular perspective, we now have wisdom and knowledge and joy. There is a time to enjoy a ribeye, amen? There's a time for a Krispy Kreme. But those pleasures don't last. True 
lasting enjoyment comes when you do what? Fear God and keep his commandments. We're gonna get to chapter five later, right? It is he who empowers you to enjoy these things. Without him, striving after the wind, steam off of a cup of coffee, vapor here and then it's gone. Vexation of spirit. In the end, it leads to misery. The bitter frustration of emptiness. Praise God, we have a God who's generous to give wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Amen? Give you a few things to ask for three questions, two of which we'll kind of work through together. Number one is more for self-reflection because I don't want to hear Derek's deep, dark confession, okay? Number one is this, is there any part of your life that's marked by the self-absorbed pursuit of pleasure? Spend this week thinking that through. It's, pleasure's not bad, but is it self-absorbed to the point where it's the exclusion of God with little regard that you will one day stand before him and give an account? Secondly, let's work through this. Why is maintaining this God-oriented perspective so hard? And by God-oriented perspective, I'm talking about the perspective that is now thus far already the message of Ecclesiastes. Why is it hard? Sin, right? Let's just run right to our theology. We're still fallen. We have an unredeemed flesh. Sinful nature. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think we're, we, we're, uh, we're, we're living in an affluent society. We have, the, we have everything that we need, right? Relatively speaking, especially compared to the rest of the world. You even think about here in this country. In many ways, we've even sanitized death, right? And, and, and I'm thankful for that. When someone passes in the hospital or hospice, uh, you know, someone else takes that person. We don't really stare into death like the rest of the world. You go to other parts of the world, there's no, there's no real undertakers in undeveloped countries. If they dig the grave, they handle the body, the whole Ebola outbreak was because they were handling effect, those infected, right? So they, they, stare, they stare at death in a way that we don't, okay? Um, we've sterilized it and kind of become insulated from death. And that creates in our society that we don't need God. I'm self-sufficient, okay? That's my rabbit tra trail tangent there. And what else? What are other reasons why this is hard to maintain this God-oriented perspective? Selfishness, which is, a, yeah, excellent. Attached to, to what Mary said. And it's good. We, we state the obvious theologically, but it's good to be mindful and remind, be humbled by that. Yes, Dustin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have to work very hard to gravitate towards discontentedness. Yeah, that was covered in men's group, right? Thursday, this, this uh, spirit of discontentment. On Thursday, yeah, everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's just kind of the way of the world, right? I think that would be another one too. It's just, I mean, for joy of the world, it, it does not fear the Lord, does not keep his commandments. So it goes without saying that the prince of the power of the air who's influ influencing the society that we live, not only do we have a sinful nature, but we have a world that's running headlong to swim in these streams, right? get more, acquire more, achieve more. That, that's what their life is all about. And so we're kind of, this, this, to live by Ecclesiastes is very countercultural to those around you. That makes it hard. It's distinct. Third question I would ask is, what are some practical things we can do that would prevent us from losing sight of this wisdom, this wisdom bound up in Ecclesiastes? What are practical things we can do to prevent us from losing sight of this wisdom? Being his word, yeah. Again, I don't want to state the obvious. I want to, I want to state the obvious. Please, yeah. Being his word. What's that? Yeah, in prayer, right? Lord, I, I know my heart. You especially know my heart. Please help. See if there be any offensive way in me, right? Lead me on the way of everlasting. Say that. S serve others. Absolutely. Be generous yourself.
you want to talk about a counter to being self-absorbed is being others directed, right? Time, energy, resources, church, be a generous person. Kind of contends against this like get, get, get kind of mentality. Excellent. Anything else? Practical things we can do to prevent us. Galen. Yes, yeah, again, because there's nothing wrong with having said things, but working really hard to view such things with, with gratitude and appreciation and, and mindfulness that this comes from the Lord, right, ultimately. Which counters the, like, self-exaltation, I worked hard and look what I accomplished. Look at my truck, look at my house. Oh, God, you've been kind. Yeah. You've shown favor. You've blessed work of hands. Thank you for that right? It's your reflex. Anything else? Practical things we can do to prevent us from losing sight of this wisdom. Accountability. Yeah. Be vulnerable, honest, transparent with people about areas where in your life where you might struggle in this vein, right? Surround yourself with people who do really embody the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. They are generous. They're not self-absorbed, right? Allow them to rub off on us. Hopefully you are that to them. Okay. Excellent. Appreciate y'all's attending this this morning. Let's go ahead and ask the Lord to, to, for his help to apply what we've heard today with eagerness of the rest of Ecclesiastes in front of us, but also the next hour. We have communion. I want to encourage you just to spend time, obviously, to prepare your hearts uh, that we would take the table in a worthy way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for its richness. We could have spent a couple of weeks in one chapter. We're grateful for um, the riches that you've put in front of us. We thank you for the conviction. We pray that that conviction would sink deep. Uh, and Lord, that it would lead to and produce not just, not only godly sorrow, but godly sorrow, as your word says, to, to repentance, a, a, a course correction in our life, that we would not be self-absorbed creatures, that by all means we would work hard and we would enjoy good things on this earth, but we would do so through this lens, that this is a gift from you. And we look to you for the ability to extract enjoyment from these things, knowing that they will not last in this life. What lasts is you, our relationship with you, and we will give an account for how we proceed. Lord, help us to live sober-minded lives with this in mind. We pray for our next hour, that the whole of the service from the songs that we exalt you through, the word that is open and we joyfully place ourselves under. Lord, to the table, which reminds us of this rich, amazing gospel that we worship around, we pray that it would be pleasing in your sight and that you would use it to not only bring glory to yourself and your son, but Lord, you would also build up and edify and bless your church. Uh, we pray this now in Christ's name, amen.